you, could you take out your Bibles, ushers? Could you come, come down? I open up to Daniel chapter nine if you can for a second. I want to, uh, I just want to teach you a little bit of maybe a, a, a way to pray. As I, look, as I look across the auditorium this morning and as I think about what's been transpiring in our church the last couple weeks, there's a lot, a lot of things to pray for. There's, there's a lot of things to pray for. In fact, on Friday, you might not know him, but there's a man in our community that uh, his name's Jeremy Ogg. He come to our church a number of times, had worked with him a number of times. At the age of 36, he just died, you know, and passed away. In, a, in that same day, going to see one of our elders, Murray Potts, who's really struggling with some serious cancer. Or there's more family relationships that need a lot of prayer that you can shake a stick at. And I think sometimes... We don't know how to utilize prayer and the power of prayer. It's funny, before prayer partners, this morning I go in and it's snowing bad. And it's like, what? I was counting eight months of this. We start in October and we go till May. What kind of state is this? Ohio's so much better. But I, but I was thinking, you know, and I go in there and we're praying and we have some faithful men who do prayer every Sunday morning in that little room back there and they pray for you. And we get out of that prayer room, and I go in the back where those windows are, and it's bright and sunny, and everything's melted, and it's like, it's time to go golfing. And to me, that's what prayer can do. It can take this overwhelming heaviness, this anxiety that churns in your stomach, and you can take it before God, lay it there, and when you get up, you know he's got everything under control. Daniel chapter 9 is a terrible passage of Scripture in a sense Israel, which are God's people, are in captivity. They're away from their homeland. And Daniel reads in the scriptures that they are only to be in captivity for 70 years. And it's that time. And so he's pleading with God to return his people. And look at verse 16 of Daniel chapter 9. And he says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for, your, for our sins and for the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. He's saying the reason we're in captivity, the reason why life is bad, like bad, it's our fault. We've sinned. He's not making excuses. He's acknowledging their position. And he says in verse 17, Now therefore... O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. And so he's saying, and keep going, verse 18. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city it's called by your name. He's saying, God, take a look at our situation. He calls it a desolation. It's bad. Everything's, it's almost like everything is hopeless. But then he says, 
this city bears your name, and we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So he says, O oh Lord, hear and forgive and pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake because your city and your people are called by your name. So he's, he's saying, God, we're in bad shape. The city's desolate. You could say that about your own, your own situation. Think about it. Is there anything in your life that seems desolate? Just desolate. Empty, destroyed. If we were honest, a big part of the reason we have desolation is because we're sinners. It's our fault. That's what Daniel's saying. And he's going to God, he's pleading with him, he's saying, okay, God, I am not praying because I'm righteous. I'm not a good man. It's not me. But I'm praying for two reasons. For your name, that you would be lifted up and glorified, and because of your mercy. He's full of compassion. This word, we're going to talk about it today, is one of the most beautiful words ever in the Old Testament called hesed. Is hesed love, loving kindness. That's just, it's, a, it's above everything we could ever ask for, hope, or think. So when we go to prayer, we think of our situation. And like so, I prayed for Murray on Friday. His cancer's bad. It is. So we say, God, I, I'm praying, not because I deserve anything, but because I want your mercy to be aroused. See this and act. And so when we pray, I'm going to ask you, what in your life, just consider in your own mind, what's desolate right now? What's desolate? And then in that desolation, let's admit probably we had a big part to play in that. So we ask him, forgive us and pour your mercy out on us so that when he answers, we will give him glory. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to pray in my knees because I just feel it's appropriate. Let's just pray. Will you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you in a position of humility, a position of need. And as I look around the congregation this morning, I know a lot of those needs. There's a lot. I can't name them, but you know them. And so, Lord, we don't come because of ourselves, because... We have done good things this week. We've smiled at our neighbors or helped somebody cross the street. That's not why we request your answers. We come to you for two reasons. Because you are so full of compassion. That's your character. Your character is mercy. And I know that, Father, you delight in rescuing people. So I just take a second, God, and I ask you, everybody in here that they're considering their desolation, Please, Father, come to their rescue. Secondly, Father, and then as you act, we just pray that, I just pray that we will really turn and tell people what you've done so that your name will be glorified. Father, take our money and use it. Enlarge our church. Let the gospel proceed and let it be powerful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can open up to Luke chapter 5. Thank you for letting me take some time to pray. Open up to Luke chapter 5. I love, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole gospel accounts. I love this story. But before we get there, I just want to ask you a question. I want to see some hands. 
If I ask, if I'd ask you, how many of you would consider yourselves an expert fisherman? Raise your hands. Jackie, I see it. Char, I know you are. You are. All right, Lee, you are. Anybody else? How about a good fisherman? Somebody's good at fishing. Okay. A lot of you are very humble people. How many of you have gone fishing an awful lot and know how to fish? Raise your hand. So not that, not as many as I thought. This is Kent City Hillbillies. I thought you guys knew more than that. I come from Cleveland, urban setting. I, the only thing I know how to fish are fish sticks out of the oven. That's it. But I've done some research. You guys have taught me a lot. You know, I know how to bait a hook, that worm. You know, I know how to cast. You lean it back. You find a perfect spot under the shade where there's an eddy. Let it toss in there and bloop, and then reel it in a little. Let it snag, and you snag it, and you pull. And then pull and stand up, and you reel it in. And you get that net and pull it up, and you got your squirming fish right there. Now, you guys are all like, yes, that's very basic. I get it. You understand you need bait, something the fish likes, and you know that you've got to be a little quiet so you don't disturb the fish. But truthfully with you, there's, it's really nothing to be proud of because fish's brains are peanuts, smaller than that. And you, a lot of you have high-tech equipment, $700 reels and rods and sonar equipment, so it's really not a big deal. It's really not that great a thing. But let me ask you this. How good are you at catching people? Do you know how to catch people? Do you know what kind of bait hooks people? Do you know what kind of people that are keepers and ones that you throw back in the water? Do you know? And do you know who the greatest fisherman of all time ever was? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Luke chapter 5. We're going to learn about the greatest fisherman and we're going to learn how he went and he caught the toughest fish ever to catch. Human beings. Believe it or not, you are one of those fish. So, this is the title of our message today. When Jesus goes fishing, he's the greatest fisherman that ever went fishing. We're going to learn how he does it so we can do it. And we're going to learn about what kind of fish he's looking for. So, let's start in verse 1. Luke chapter 5, when Jesus goes fishing. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, which you know every time Jesus spoke it was the word of God, because he is the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's a, it's actually another idiom for the Sea of Galilee. Gennesaret is a tiny little town, and so it was in that location, so that's why scholars say this is the one time it calls it the Lake of Gennesaret, but it's the Sea of Galilee. And actually, that picture right there, it's an actual picture of Sea of Galilee when Bill and Linda took us to Israel this year. It's beautiful. So that's where we're at, right there, in this story. Verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. If you notice as an exclamation point. He's kind of upset. Master, 
we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he calls him Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is a story of Peter just goes fishing. Peter and his disciples go fishing. Actually, the fish that uh, scholars say they were probably looking for is this fish called a tilap tilapia, a little, tall, small, a little small fish that swims in big schools. And this day, Peter was having no luck, so they were just drying their nets. And as the story goes, Jesus told them to go out, go back fishing, because really this wasn't about fishing for fish. This was Jesus fishing for men. He was going after his main fish, his main catch was Peter. Often you'll hear, this is a great illustration of how to go to get disciples. Just go drop nets, some you get some in, and man, Jesus will bring in a harvest. The truth of the matter is, this isn't a model for how to necessarily go catch fish. This is a model of how Jesus catches us, and you'll see. And it's, it's how I was caught, and you'll understand in a second. So while Peter's having no luck, Jesus tells Peter, he's, he, he basically is getting crowded in. He's speaking. At this time, he's probably been in ministry for about a year. He's already done some healings. And now he's going over to the Sea of Galilee. People just want to hear him. He's an amazing speaker. They're crowding in on him. He sits in a boat for a while. It's probably rocking in a nice, nice day, nice calm day. People can hear him all up the, up the mountainside, and then he just tells Peter, hey, Peter, I'm done preaching. Let's go catch some fish. And it's middle of the afternoon, probably. And so Peter says, all right. You're going to see how he responds to him. But what's going to happen is Peter is going to go after his fish. But Jesus is going after his. And so here's the deal. While Peter's going after real fish, Jesus goes after a, one singular kind of fish. So when he lets down his net, he's searching for one kind of fish. Really, there's five kinds of human fish. There's five kinds, believe it or not. So when Jesus lets down his net, he's going after one of those fish. The first kind of fish that really he's not going after, that is a human kind of fish, is a kingfish. It's this fish that is proud of themselves. They don't need anything. They are fine. They don't need to be caught. They're proud of their life. They're proud of the, their abilities. They're proud of who they are. They just, they think they've already arrived. So they don't need God. It's a kingfish. Then you have these kind called mudsuckers. They're bottom feeders. They are interested in being caught because they are already drinking in garbage. So they're not interested in holiness. 
these are the kind of people that are occupied with sin and pleasure and rotten things. They're mudsuckers. They bottom feed. And it's hard to get their attention. And in a sense, that's not who God's necessarily going after right now. The third kind is the Jewfish. There's a real fish called a Jewfish. So all of these are real fishes. You're probably, what kind of name is that? There's a real Jewfish. But in human terms, a Jewfish is the religious righteous person. The person who says, I'm already caught. I'm already in. I do my religious duty. I'm, I was born into the right family. I was born in either a Jewish family or a Christian family. And my mom and dad are Christian. So therefore, I'm Christian. I go to church. So see, I'm, all, I'm already in and God thinks I'm special. So I'm in. And then you have the bonefish. The bonefish, if you, bonefish actually in real life are some of the fastest fish ever. That's probably why they're bony. They have no fat because they just they swim super fast. But a bonefish in human terms is that person that's just busy. They're too busy to get caught. They're busy, busy, busy. I got I got things to do, places to go, a job to succeed at. Uh, you know, I've got land and a cabin to fix up. I've got sports to go watch. I just am too busy to do anything. I'm, I'm busy, busy, busy. So these four kinds of fish are the kind God would love to catch them, but they don't want to be caught. There's a fifth kind of fish. It's a sinner. It's a sinner fish. Actually, Peter calls himself that. If you look in verse 8, Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, a sinner. That's the fifth kind of fish. Now, as you're just watching this, you could probably say, wait a minute, everybody's a sinner. We're all sinners. Yes, but that's from an objective viewpoint. That's from the outside looking in. So from the outside looking in, every single one of you are, are a sinner. Everybody is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in order to be caught, it's a subjective reality. It's how you view yourself. In a sense, perception is reality. Even though you're a sinner, you may think you're a kingfish. <laughs> I'm already arrived. I got everything taken care of. You, you, you might be a mudsucker saying, oh, I know that God is there, but I don't care. I'm, I like my addictions. So really, God is looking for somebody who on the inside knows they need him. So the question is, how then do you identify people who are sinners? Or how do you identify if you yourself are a sinner? It's really simple. Every fisherman knows this. Here's the way, go to the next slide. Here's how you identify a sinner. It's very simple. It's more simple than you'll ever realize, but I don't think we do stop and think about it. A sinner or a fish that is ready to be caught is the one who is hungry. They are hungry. And you'll understand what I mean by this in a second. Every good fisherman knows you can't catch a fish unless it's hungry. If a fish is satisfied, why would it take the bait? A true fish, true center fish is hungry. Now what does that mean? I want you to look at verse 5 and just stop on it for a second. This has knocked me dead all week just thinking about it because this I think this is the reality of a person before they really let Christ catch them, take their life. Listen to what Peter says. Simon Peter told Jesus after Jesus said, go fishing. He said, Master, we toiled all night 
and took nothing. We toiled all night and took nothing. What he's saying is to me the disposition of a person before they're ready for Christ. What he's saying is I have tried. If, I, if I'm the kingfish, I've tried everything to make myself the best, and I'm telling you nothing works. I still feel like a loser, a failure. It's the same thing for the mudsucker. I have, I have chased everything, every pleasure. Solomon has. He chased every pleasure known to man, and it doesn't satisfy. It gives me nothing. The religious person, I have tried and tried and tried to please God by being good, by going to church, by doing this, and I still don't know if God's even pleased with me. I think I'm a good person, but I don't know. I've, I don't know. I have no certainty. I have nothing. And then the bonefish, the busy person, is a person who tries to find meaning in success, in money, but it's empty. In a, in a physical way, Peter was trying to catch fish all day, but he caught nothing. In a spiritual way, it's the same thing. I'm empty. I am empty. Another word for empty to me spiritually is hungry. I'm hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. In order to be filled, I have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But in my opinion, we aren't hungry people in America. We are so overstimulated with everything else that God is... We don't, we don't have that much hunger. But Peter knew his fishing was getting him nowhere. So when Jesus said, go fishing some more. The expert in him basically said, well, we've worked all day. I mean, all night. What he's saying is, it's, I'm an expert at fishing. I kind of know you're a carpenter. Yeah. But you know what? We didn't catch anything, so okay. I'll obey. And here's how you can tell if you're hungry. It's this, this thing. A, hung, a truly hungry person might not agree or understand what the Word of God is telling them, but they will obey it. They might not agree with it. might not make sense to them. They might not like it. But it's all I got. I'll obey it. That's really what true hungry faith is. True hungry faith is giving up the toil, giving up trying, and then giving in to what God says. People who give up and don't give in have really not given up. True Christianity is giving up and then giving in. Giving in meaning, I will do what God says because I have toiled all night and I have nothing. I've tried everything. I've tried to be religious, tried to be successful. Peter thought he was a successful fisherman and he's a failure. He gave up and he finally gave in to what Jesus told him to do. Hunger gives up and gives in to the food Offered. A truly hungry person does not have the luxury of being picky. If you are truly hungry, God's word will be appealing to you. When you're not hungry, you could care less about the things of God. I just think we have a lot of Sunday Christians who come because it kind of looks good, but do we have really hungry Christians? Here, I'll give you an illustration. My wife and I, we're, we're in Russia. 
it was really boring, the ministry we did there. I would go on the basketball courts, and these kids would gather around because I could speak English. And I said, would you like to learn English? And they'd say, sure. I'd say, okay, I'm going to teach you the Bible. They'd say, the Bible? What's Really? So I taught them the Bible. They'd come, and they would just sit around. I just They would just ask questions about the Bible. I didn't have any big events. I didn't have blowing jello through my nose. I didn't have, you know, like uh, dodgeball fights. I, I, they, just, they just sat around, and I think some of it, I could speak English, but also they started coming because they never heard this stuff before. My wife got done with a women's Bible study. It was the parents of these kids. I said, how'd it go? She said, they couldn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So what do you mean? They kept asking me. They said, so what you're telling me is he died and he rose? They kept asking me, how can a man rise from the dead? And they were so... Uh, he rose from the dead? And she said, they were actually interested in that. That's what she said. They were actually interested in that. In other words, they were hungry. You don't need to serve it up with cool music or funny messages. You just serve it up and they eat it up. It's, they're hungry. We live in Christianity where I've got to put a little pizzazz and salt and season salt on it for you to take it. How do you know, though, if you really are being hunted by God, you'll just take it no matter how it is, and you'll do it. Blessed is the man who hears my word and does it. A truly hungry person might not agree or understand, but they will obey. So Peter obeys. And watch what happens in verse 6 and 7. To me, this is the most overwhelming part. I hope I can communicate this well because this is, this is amazing. So he says, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, at your word, I'll do what you say. I'll let down the nets. He wasn't too happy about it. But all right, I'll do what you say. It's your word. So verse 6, and when they had done this, so they went out and they dropped the net. When they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Breaking. This is, this is a probably a summer-long catch in one hour. You know, they met their quota in an hour for the whole summer, for the whole year. And this one catch. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats, so they began to sink. So the question, do you know what happening is happening here? And you could say, yes, Peter's caught a ton of fish. No, 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 no. Jesus caught his man. I'll put it to you like this. Go to the next slide. What is the only bait that really hooks a person? I mean, you know what baits get fish, worms, and all that. But there is one bait, one thing that really hooks a person and reels them in and has them for the rest of their life. And that word is mercy. This is the expression of God's mercy. How, how will I define mercy in this case? Mercy is defined by extravagant over-the-top, undeserving grace. 
That's what makes us fall in love with him. He gives us. He gives us more than we could ever ask for, hope, or think when we know we don't deserve anything. He gives Peter the greatest catch of his life when he knows he doesn't deserve anything. Mercy is what catches us. Mercy is what keeps us for the rest of our life. Listen to, go to Psalm 103. I think Psalm 103 explains it more vividly than any other text. And it's funny, Jared, I didn't know we were going to sing this song today, but Psalm 103 talks about, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. We just sang that today. Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits or his blessings or the things he wants to give you. Verse 4, or verse 3, he forgives, he forgives, he forgives all of your iniquity. All of them. He heals all your diseases. He re, and this is it. He redeems your life from the pit, and he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That steadfast love and mercy is hesed. It's mercy. So here you are in the pit, in your desolation, in the bottom, and he comes, and he doesn't just rescue you and lift you up out of the pit, but he keeps going. He crowns you. He crowns you. He gives you way more than you can ever ask for, hope, or think. When you know, I'm down here because I, I sin. And then he goes on and he just keeps saying, man, he's going to satisfy you with good. He's going to restore you so that your youth is like the eagles. I, I look at... I'm sorry, Lee, but I look at you getting that new liver. I mean, doesn't it feel good to feel strong again? He renews you. You're not on that stinking hospital bed. Look at verse 10, or start in verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Nor does he deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. And as high as the heavens are above earth, so great is the steadfast love that's hesed towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he moves our transgressions from us. You probably heard it, but I'll say it a million times. I'm glad he didn't say as far as the north is from the south, because you can go north. But if you go east to west, the farther you go east, the more you're not getting west. It's, it's unreachable. That's what he wants to do. That's hesed mercy, love. And that's what hooks you. And when you have it in you, you just can't believe it. You just can't believe it. I, I'll just I'll tell you my just a own personal story to give you a little taste of what it tastes like. Before I went to Russia, using Russia as my constant theme here, I like depression. So before I went to Russia, we were going to spend a whole year there. And we met with the team leader. And the team leader says, before you go to Russia, you have got to be sure you have your spiritual condition taken care of. So you, I want you to take a couple days to fast and pray and ask God to reveal if there's anything you need to get right before you go to Russia because it's hard. It's hard work. It's spiritually taxing work. So he said, this is going to be one of maybe the hardest thing you're going to do, but go home, pray, fast, ask God to reveal things to you. And instantly he revealed something to me I didn't think about for years. Five years before I became a Christian, I was going to a college university and I went to a dance and I rented a tuxedo. 
After the dance, I put this tuxedo in the closet, and I never returned it to the tuxedo store. I kept getting a bill from the tuxedo store, and I kept throwing the bill away. I did that for a year. They never contacted me back. And then I moved out, and I never thought of it again. But then I took that fast. I went back, and I asked God to reveal things to me. He's like, Chris, you never dealt with that bill. That was five years ago, and there's what if I have to pay back the fee for not returning it on time, and it's a constant fee for five years. But I had to deal with it, so I called the guy, and I wrote, I actually, I got the guy's name. I wrote a letter. I told him my whole situation. I said, I'm leaving to Russia. I said, how much do I owe? I'll do whatever, I, whatever it takes to pay it back. Here's the letter I got back. Dear sir, I, too, saved by grace. You owe me nothing. God bless you. That's, a, that's just an example where you just are like, what? I don't deserve this. But it's amazing. And when you feel that, it catches you. You're caught. Watch how Peter responds. This is, this is the feeling that you get when you really, un, you really taste his mercy. I love this passage. Peter says in verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, meaning when he saw all those fish, when he saw how much, he probably, he's probably like, Jesus, I don't want to let down my nets. You don't, you know, he's probably in his mind even criticizing God, Jesus' request. And when he saw it, it says when his eyes saw it, opened up, you know, like really realized, it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And he said, have, depart from, have nothing to do with me because I'm a sinner. When you taste mercy, it's exactly what you feel like. You're just like, I can't, I, I can't pay you back. I don't deserve this. Do you know why we feel this way? Because in the natural course of life, we only understand judgment. People never give us more than we ask. In fact, they love to rub it on when we fail. They love to keep us always under their thumb. They always like to show us that we failed them. Oh, gone it, you failed me. God's like, finally, <laughs> you got everything because you got me. We don't understand it. Because we live under judgment all the time. But God does just the opposite. I want to show you an amazing verse. This is Romans 11. This verse has meant so much to me in the last two years. Because it's so antithetical to the way that we have been designed in our flesh. This does not make sense to us. But it's Romans 11.32. It says, For God has consigned all. This is Romans 11.32. For God has consigned or let all or given all over to disobedience, meaning he's let all of us really, in a sense, fail. 
toil all night and have nothing. So if you want to put a great definition for disobedience, toil all night and have nothing. He's letting all of us consign to that so that he might have mercy on us all. Why does he want to have, why does he want to give us mercy? Because mercy is the bait that hooks us for life. Mercy is that character quality of God that is so beautiful, I can't believe it. It is when a spouse, a man cheats on his wife, and a wife says, I love you and I forgive you. What? It's when a tuxedo owner says, you owe me nothing. Or it's when God says, do you see the blood that was spilled in Calvary? It's finished. It's finished. It's done. Grace and kindness grab you forever. It's God's hook. It's mercy. So let's go back to Luke 5. Traditionally in our circles, when a person gets hooked, we can say saved, we think the job's done. I think it's over. We get big revivals, get people saved. Amen, we did our job. Count the numbers. How many heads we get saved? All right, we're done. Let's get ready for the next revival. But when a good fisherman catches a fish, the next thing he does is clean it. <laughs> That's probably the most important part. You catch a fish so you can eat it. If you don't clean the fish, it's kind of a waste. The same sense, when God catches us and hooks us by mercy, he then starts to clean the fish, clean us out. He wants us to be different. How does he do this? Watch what happens. There's two things that happen to us. So Peter says, depart from me from a sinful man, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch. They, again, that astonished means they didn't deserve, they, they received what they didn't deserve. They got more than they ever could bargain for. That's mercy. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with him. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. He's like, hey, don't, you're not under my condemnation. There is therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do not be afraid. Don't live under guilt. Stop living under guilt. Don't be afraid. From now on, though, from now on, you'll be catching men. So there's two things he's saying. After you receive that grace, not only are you no longer under condemnation, but that condemnation should make you live different. He uses that phrase, from now on, what he's saying is at this point in time, your life is, should be different. From now on. From now on is a phrase that means repentance is intended to be change. You should be different than who you were before you were caught. So you were... Why would I go and go get another tuxedo and steal it again? I just got let go of that. I don't want to do that anymore. Why, when a wife lets her, forgives her husband for adultery, why would he want to do that anymore? Change. It's like the adulterous woman. And everybody's going to stone her. And Jesus said, all right, you who has not committed a sin, throw the first stone, and everybody drops their rocks and leaves, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus says, now go and sin no more. From now on, 
be different. Watch how Colossians puts it. I love this. Go to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. In verses 5 through 17. Colossians 3, starting in verse 4, he's talking about Christ, who's your life. So he's talking to people who've made Christ their life. In a sense, people who've become Christians. He, and so what he says, he says, all right, now verse 5, here's what you need to do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what you were like before you came to Christ, which includes sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Meaning, that's what you were saved from. That's... Be done with that. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. That means thinking evil of people, slandering people behind their back, obscene talk from your mouth. Be done with it. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. I had a, I had a professor at Moody who said where it says, put off the old self and put on the new self. He took this coat, took... He had an old raggedy jacket and a new one. He said, and he will put that old jacket on. He goes, this is who you were before Christ. And when you come to Christ, take off that moth-eaten jacket and put on this brand new jacket. That jacket represents character qualities. Stop wearing the old jacket of anger, and lying, and slander, and perverseness. Take it off. Put on this new jacket of nobility, beauty, kindness, righteousness. And that's what he goes on to say. This new self, which is renewed in knowledge. You know, in this new self, there's no Greek or Jew. And so verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. Somebody's complaint, forgive each other. Put on love. Put on your new coat. So the first thing is from now on, take off your moth-written jacket, put on your new coat. And then he also says this, from now on, you'll be catching men, fishers of men. And Christianity at its core is other-centered. A caught person, a caught person is done searching. Before I came to Christ, I was all those different fish. I'm looking for meaning in busyness. I'm looking for meaning in pride. I'm looking for meaning in religion or even in bottom feeding. That is where people think they get meaning and significance and satisfaction. And then when they are toiled and then they're, they have nothing, and then they find Christ. Now they're satisfied. It's funny, you probably heard some of the most dangerous people you meet are people who are insecure in who they really are. They're ones who are living passive-aggressively. They always have to prove themselves. They always got to knock other people down to make themselves look great because they're insecure with who they are. They don't know who they are. But a secure person, he doesn't need to prove anything. If I have Christ, I no longer have condemnation. I have his mercy. Isn't that security? What more do I need? I don't need to prove anything anymore, so now I can be other-centered. It's not about me anymore. It just isn't. He wants you to catch others. 
So how do we do this when you go catching? And I want you to really hear me out because this is, I'm just thinking through this. When fishing, here's maybe the most important thing we need to remember. Because I don't know if we remember this. It's very simple because when you're a fisherman, Char, you get this stuff. But as a human being, we forget this. And here it is. It's so easy. Here it is. Use the same bait that hooked you. That's how you catch people. Like, what does that mean? Well, what hooked you? Mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. If I'd be honest with you, like uh, for the longest time, I thought, you know, I can't be a pastor because in a sense, I'm a terrible evangelist. I'm really bad at it. But I started thinking about it. I'm bad at a kind of, a kind of, uh, paradigm of evangelist. I'm a terrible modern evangelist. A modern evangelist is really not using this kind of bait. A modern evangelist uses gimmicks to catch people, formulas. I try to, I tell you the Romans road, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Believe in Jesus, you shall be saved. And you're not saved, you're going to hell. Where's the mercy in that? That's that's called modern evangelism. I use a formula to get numbers. I'll use music a hundred times to get numbers. I write on the thing, look at all the people that got saved, but truthfully, they're not necessarily caught. I once heard an evangelist said, I'm so tired of doing revivals because I'll come back in a town a year later and the same people are coming forward. But boy, we got numbers. Why are they coming forward? Because the bait didn't hook them. Usually the bait we use is manipulation, guilt, condemnation. I'm a terrible evangelist when it comes to postmodern postmodern evangelism. What postmodern evangelism is is there's really no truth. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Just be a good person. That doesn't work because it keeps people away from the truth. But thinking about it, I think I'm pretty good at classical evangelism. What does evangel mean? Evangel means good news, specifically good news that you're forgiven through Christ. You, you are forgiven through Christ. I can tell you sometimes when people would come in my office, I'd tell them something, they'd leave, they'd come back five years later, and I was mad at them, but God would say, have mercy on them. I'd tell them again. They'd leave, come back two years later, caught up in the same and what was happening, every time they were leaving and they were coming back, they were, they were toiling, 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 and then they came back and I got nothing. Toiling, to trying something else, I got nothing. One time that same person finally came back and said, all right, I'm done. Help. I could get mad, but I said, you know what? God's grace is amazing. And I have seen people, even after they've toiled so long, they finally get it. And it's amazing! I have seen where all of a sudden you give a sermon and somebody comes up and they get it, and they get it like that, but more times than not, I have seen it takes a long time, but you got to keep giving mercy and forgiveness and grace. I have seen spouses that have waited a long time. And when they come back and they can't believe they're really, really forgiven, that's when they get hooked. The problem with old, what I would say, modern evangelism is we think it's 
word games and argumentation, arguments, logic, reason. I can out-argue the atheist. Do you know why people are atheists for the most part? Is because they like the people that are atheists, so they become like them. It's not really intellect. The reason why people don't come to Christ is they're still toiling and toiling. You need to look for that person that's exhausted and say you're forgiven. And it changes their life. If you don't know Christ, like if you've really never accepted Christ, and you don't want to be pressured, I'm not here to pressure you, but I hear, here's what I'm telling you. When he went on a cross, we used to have a cross right Here's our cross right there. When he died on a cross, God's wrath, all of his anger at those things you do, all of his anger was thrown at Jesus. All of it. And it's kind of like he kept throwing it. Throwing his anger. All the sins of the world, he threw it. And then finally God threw all of it. And he's tired out. He's done. I'm done. I, it's all paid. So when Jesus said it's finished, what he meant is God's wrath is over. He's not angry anymore. When I accept Christ, he sees me as the one who already, already took all the wrath. If I don't accept Christ, someday I'm going to have to face the second throwing of that wrath. And I can't withstand it. But Jesus can because he's God. He's the Lord. Are you hidden in Christ or not? Have you accepted him or not? If you haven't accepted him, the wrath is going to come. If you've accepted him, his mercy will give you more than you can ever ask for, hope, or imagine. And when you taste it, you're changed. Are you changed? Are you changed? Let's pray. Father, this is, uh, this is such a good story. There's so many times I just concur with Peter where I just want to say, God, leave me because I'm a sinner. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're drawn to my admission of sin. You're drawn to my desperation. You're drawn to my need for mercy and compassion. And I know it's the same way with everybody in here. You are drawn to their need. You're drawn to it because you're a God that wants to save. So I pray that you would come and save some people in here. Pour out your mercy, your compassion and grace. Forgive us. And then make us brand new and send us out to show the same kind of compassion and mercy in others. We love you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray.